0: This is Healthcare Policy Unpacked, a podcast exclusively for Health Plan Alliance members produced in partnership with Spring Street Exchange and Policy Insider, Chris Condolucci. Welcome. I'm Dennis Bolin. I work for you at the Health Plan Alliance. Welcome to our February podcast, where we take a look at policy issues in Washington and across the country. And with me today is our Washington go-to guy, Chris Condolucci.
1: Hi, Chris. Hey, Dennis. How are you? I hope you had a great first month of the year, turning the page on 2021 and getting rolling in 2022. Things are coming along. I know the weather's been kind of crazy for everybody around the country, so I hope everyone's staying warm, cozy, and especially safe in these times that we're living in.
0: Well, I'm trying to, Chris. Uh, February always reminds me of that great Bill Murray movie, Groundhog Day. You probably like it too. Punxsahawney Phil, I think, saw his shadow. So we've got six more weeks of winter. So I'm kind of over that you know, I hate repeating things, which (laughs) kind of reminds me a little bit of Washington right now. Have we turned the page yet, Chris, on 2021 and really looking at 2022?
1: Yeah, it's funny about this Groundhog Day concept. You know, we were chatting about it before we came on the podcast here, and it's something that congressional staff and, you know, like folks who are the policy geeks like me who work in Washington, D.C., we oftentimes use this term Groundhog Day because too many times Congress does the same thing over and over and over again. And again, being February and with Groundhog Day just a week ago, we felt it was appropriate to mention Groundhog Day, and kind of what is going on in, in Congress, which is literally Groundhog Day. And what do we mean by that? Well, first, as we discussed, and you know, as folks read in the news and have read the news over the last year and a half, there's been this discussion of eliminating the filibuster in the Senate, this uh, arcane kind of uh, legislative process that a minority party may be able to use to uh, limit or get in the way of the majority party's policy goals. And There was a discussion on eliminating the filibuster even before the 2020 election happened. We didn't even know who was going to be president. We didn't even know whether Democrats were going to uh, be running all of Washington, D.C., but we did come January of 2021. And then there was a big discussion of eliminating the filibuster in the early part of 2021. Well, that died down a bit, but now... There is a new, renewed discussion of eliminating the filibuster, which goes back to the Groundhog Day. We're back to where we were last year, and what really precipitated the discussion on this eliminating the filibuster was uh, efforts to e- enact uh, legislation regarding voting rights. That's just one example. Another example is you know the January 6th uh, anniversary. We we all I think as, as Americans you know look back to that day of last year and 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 frown a bit. Um, don't want to bring any politics into our discussion, but the point of the matter is there was an anniversary of January 6th. That was also precipitated by uh, Congress looking at election reform. So again, just a Groundhog Day getting back to where they were you know, last year. And we might actually see some election reform legislation get enacted between now and the end of the first quarter. Another big, big Groundhog Day concept is a government shutdown showdown. Dennis, as you know, Congress always has to fund the government, and they always kick the can. They always don't have their act together to figure out how to fund the government over an extended period of time. February 18th, only a week and a half away from today, about two weeks from today, is actually a deadline for funding the government. And right now we are setting the stage for a government shutdown showdown So once again, we're back to where Congress has always been, again, Groundhog Day. The last two items, State of the Union. While State of the Union is an annual event, actually this will be President Biden's first State of the Union address on March 1st. So again, kind of fitting in with our Groundhog Day concept. And then lastly, about a week and a half ago, two weeks ago, we were told that there's going to be a Supreme Court vacancy. Interestingly, we are now experiencing the fourth Supreme Court vacancy in five years. So again, another Groundhog Day kind of concept of each year, Congress is going through a justice confirmation uh, setting, Here, the appointment, having the confirmation hearings, and then ultimately having a vote on the floor, which, as we have seen in the past, has been, you know, a bit controversial, some butting of the heads of, of the political parties in Congress Uh, remains to be seen how this next Supreme Court vacancy is going to play out. But one note is we, we don't expect it having a big impact on the Supreme Court going forward in the way in which the Supreme Court is right now organized, where you have what most folks call the conservative right leaning wing of the justices on the Supreme Court and what most folks call the left leaning, more liberal justices on the Supreme Court. This new appointment will not have any impact on kind of that balance on the bench?
0: Well, Chris, those are all familiar issues. Like you mentioned, we've been through them uh, before, and I'm with you. I don't want to have to relive most parts of 2021. So, you know, if we look forward to 2022, then there is an issue that's carrying forward, and that is the Build Back Better Act. And I've heard you say, Chris, that the Build Back Better Act is dead. Long live the skinny Build Back Better Act. What do you mean by that?
1: Yeah, it's, it's another kind of funny, you know, tongue in cheek comment, just trying to utilize uh, the cliches out there. But when it comes to the comment that you just made about the BBA, Build Back Better Act being dead, Senator Manchin, Democrat from West Virginia, about a week and a half ago, was on one of the political talking head shows, CNN in particular, where the senator said the big Build Back Better Act is dead in its current form, which got a lot of all the policy analysts and folks in the media all spun up over, oh no, the Build Back Better Act is dead. But to an extent, the Build Back Better Act is dead comment is really relating to what the House of Representatives voted out last year and led to really the Senate not being able to enact that piece of legislation. And that kicked us into 2022. Well, Senator Manchin has also indicated that he is still open to negotiating many of the provisions that were included in that House passed version of the Build Back Better Act which has led policy analysts like me and others to say, well, yes, the Build Back Better Act is dead based on what Senator Manchin just said publicly, but there could be a skinny Build Back Better Act, as we would call it, uh, finally maybe seeing the light of day. So what would be in this quote unquote skinny Build Back Better Act? Well, we do expect drug pricing reforms to be included in there because that's government spending that is going to be needed for new funding, that is going to be set forth under this new iteration. So that will be a pay for. But I start with drug pricing reform because it's been something that we've been talking about for the better part of a year and a half. And we always expected it to be in some form of a Build Back Better Act should it be enacted. Also, there will likely be some corporate and international tax changes as revenue raisers. Actually, Senator Manchin has said one of the things he would like to see in this Newly negotiated Build Back Better Act, this skinny BBA, is some changes to the tax code. Again, that money will all be used to fund, for example, free pre-K and other child and elder care programs, something that was a part of the House passed version. Climate change reforms, big issue for congressional Democrats and the Biden administration, as well as many others. Extending the ACA's enhanced premium subsidies that came in through the American Rescue Plan. We've talked at length about those enhanced premium subsidies. We're actually going to talk a little bit more about them uh, throughout the podcast, but that's likely going to be in a skinny BBA. And then lastly, there's issues relating to the Medicaid redeterminations associated with the public health emergency that came in through the American Rescue Plan. In short, as many folks might be reading up or dealing with this day-to-day in what you do when it comes to health coverage, is. The American Rescue Plan expanded eligibility for Medicaid, but it was tied to the COVID public emergency. Well, the public health emergency is still ongoing. It is supposed to expire in April, but the administration might extend it. And many of states are saying even if the public health emergency is, is extended in April, they still need more time to figure out how these Medicaid enrollment eligibility redeterminations are going to happen because- most folks don't want these folks that are right now on Medicaid because of COVID and because of the American Rescue Plan losing coverage. So that will likely be a part of a skinny BBA as well. Well, Chris, you
0: mentioned the subsidies
1: on the exchange.
0: And you know, that's probably one area that I wouldn't mind repeating from 2021 into 2022. But Do you have a sense of will those continue? Because, I mean, we hit a new record this year with 14.5, I believe it was, million uh, consumers enrolled on the exchanges. That's a pretty significant bump up and really helped our members who are on the exchange. So is that going to carry
1: forward to 2022? Yeah, and drilling down on whether the enhanced premium subsidy is going to be extended or not, I mean, that's a big, big deal and it does tie into the record exchange enrollment numbers that we just heard about. You know, open enrollment of 2022 just ended January 31st. Administration announced a record 14.5 million consumers as you mentioned, Dennis, enrolling in an exchange plan. And as I've always said, you know, politics and policies impact exchange enrollment. And here with the COVID special enrollment period that was announced Back in January 2021, when President Biden first took office, that led to 2.5 million new consumers enrolling during that COVID SEP in the middle of 2021. And those folks really just got re-enrolled during open enrollment, which has contributed to this 14.5 million number. But the enhanced premium subsidies had a significant impact. They attracted millions more to the exchanges. And importantly here, as we've reported and we've talked about at length, the enhanced premium subsidies go away at the end of 2022. So when we get to open enrollment 2023, which starts November 1st of this year of 2022, if there are no enhanced premium subsidies for 2023, that will likely impact enrollment. We saw a record number enrollment this year, if the subsidies, the enhanced premium subsidies, that is, are not extended, that's going to actually have a significant impact on enrollment, and we would likely see a drop. Maybe not in 2023, but certainly in future years, as you know, many exchange enrollees you know, have difficulty in uh, affording coverage because they're no longer getting a zero-dollar plan or you know a very um, low-cost plan. Um, so, really, uh, I'll finish my comments here on exchange enrollment, Dennis, to say. It is unclear whether extending the enhanced premium subsidies is going to happen because the BBA is dead as, as we just discussed long live the skinny BBA question mark, because we don't know if that's going to happen, but it could. And if the skinny BBA fails, then the Biden administration and congressional Democrats are going to have to figure out how they can extend the enhanced premium subsidies either on a standalone basis or through some other legislative vehicle, which is gonna be very difficult for them to find and do now that we're in this 2022 election year because the midterms are coming up in November of 2022. So it remains to be seen how it plays out with the extension. There's certainly interest there and certainly knowing that calamity might occur when it comes to enrollment, uh, but stay tuned. Well,
0: Chris, I got to stop you there for just a second and ask you a little bit about timing on all of this, because our members make really critical decisions about pricing and product design in late spring and early summer. It sounds like we're going to still be in a period of uncertainty when we're needing to make those decisions.
1: Yeah, and 100% uncertainty. I mean, no one likes uncertainty. The market doesn't like uncertainty. The stakeholders don't like uncertainty. Consumers don't like uncertainty. You know the only benefit that I could potentially think of is the subsidies essentially blunt any premium increases that a subsidized exchange holder would ever experience. But if the enhanced premium subsidies are not extended, a component of that is subsidies for individuals above 400% of poverty. And so if those folks are put back into what we all call the unsubsidized market and premiums have to go up because of the uncertainty, associated with policies and politics, well, that's going to impact the unsubsidized market as well as the subsidized market as we discussed because the the generous subsidies won't be to the same extent as they currently are for 2022. So that is going to be problematic and and you know, rates have to be filed in the next three months uh, for review both by CMS in federal exchange in in, in those states that participate in the federal exchange and in those states that have a state-based exchange. So it is a big, big deal um, and a difficult one. And and if you'll indulge me, Dennis, let me offer this. Speaking of just uncertainty and certifications when it comes to selling exchange plans, the 2023 Notice of Benefit or Payment Parameters was released, the proposed, was released uh, December 28th of last year. We discussed it on our last podcast, Dennis, but I wanted to add one piece that we didn't discuss during that podcast, and that is a proposal to add additional standards to the network adequacy rules. CMS has said that they will scrutinize plans and a plans network when it comes to things like driving time and distance to a particular provider in your network. In other words, if you're in a 15-mile radius and there are four providers that could otherwise be in your network but you plan choose not to have those providers in your network instead you choose a provider 25 miles away cms might come in to say that doesn't meet the time and distance standard and our network adequacy rules and therefore we're not going to certify your plan so that's an issue that plans have to take into account and unfortunately even though this has been proposed in the recent nbpp cms said we're going to come out with additional details on what we mean by time and distance. um, So stay tuned on that. So that's another piece of uncertainty, Dennis, where folks understand that there's going to be increased scrutiny on some of these standards when it comes to getting certified, when it comes to networks, but we don't know all the details just yet. So stay tuned on that as well.
0: Well, you know, Speaking of Groundhog Day, it's not unusual for us to not have all the details yet, right, Chris? I mean, the, the government seems very good at putting out the rules without the details. So I'm going to ask that we keep this on our watch list sure. and, uh, and come back to it in coming months. So just to wrap things up here today, another issue that our members are really focused in on right now are the guidelines and rules around paying for COVID tests. Once again, another example of the government putting out guidelines and rules without a lot of specificity on how to actually implement the rules. So can you give us an overview and, and kind of where things stand and what the health plans and the self-insured marketplace is responsible for covering when it comes to COVID
1: testing? Yeah, 100 percent. And, you know, it's it's kind of a groundhog day as well to the point of, you know, COVID's been with us for far longer than any of us would like. And we see another policy here that's explicitly and exclusively driven by COVID, and that is requiring insurance carriers and self-insured plans to pay for over-the-counter COVID tests. So we touched on this on our podcast, but on January 10th, the federal government issued guidance and we didn't have time to dig into that guidance at that time, but we have now. And in short, the guidance in the form of frequently asked questions, mind you, so not even a regulation, just simply said, hey, insurance carriers, hey, self-insured plans, if a participant and their dependents go to a pharmacy and purchase a COVID test over the counter, you must pay for that. Now, the guidance did place a limit on how much the payers have to pay for these COVID tests. The limit is eight tests per participant plus their dependents over a 30-day period. So just to put into context, If you're a family of four, the plan has to pay for up to 32 tests over a month's long period. Now, what's important here, and what differs from this particular guidance relative to previous rules, is in this case, the carrier, the payer, has to pay for the COVID test. It doesn't matter if a physician ordered the test as being medically appropriate. Instead, it only matters if the participant or the dependent went to the pharmacy, and bought an over-the-counter test. Now, back to the confusion and the uncertainty and and lack of specificity, it's very difficult for a carrier to ask that participant or dependent, why did you buy this test? And many of them will say, whether it's medically appropriate or not, that they bought it over-the-counter, so therefore the carrier is going to have to pay for that test per this particular guidance. Now, what's important here, too, there's been a lot of questions of, okay, if we've got to pay for it, how do we pay for it? Well, the guidance encouraged payers to create or establish a direct payment program to an in-network pharmacy or a retailer. So in this case, the participant would do nothing. They would go, they would buy the test, and the relationship that the payer has with that particular pharmacy The pharmacy would send the bill to the payer. The payer would pay it directly. That's one way to pay for these tests. The other is if a carrier does not establish a direct payment program, participants are required to file a claim through the normal health claims process and request a reimbursement for the cost after the fact. And now when it comes to this non-direct payment, a number of carriers have created really detailed forms that participants must fill out either online or on paper and send it to the carrier along with the receipts. And you know, some of the bigger carriers out there that do not have a direct coverage program, like your Anthems, your some of the blues plans in Michigan, Blue Shield of California, CareFirst, others like Cigna, CVS, Aetna, Kaiser. Right now, they don't have a direct coverage option. And so they're actually requiring participants to fill out a pretty complicated form. Now, there are some other uh, groups that do have online submissions, and others like Brute Cost of, of North Carolina, Centene, HCSE, Florida Blue, Humana, UHC, they do have a direct payment program. So We just wanted to give your members, or I wanted to give your members, Dennis, an example of what some of the carriers are doing. And the last thing I'll say here, Dennis, is the federal government wanted to prevent price gouging by out-of-network pharmacy and retailers. So the guidance that came out on January 10th said, well, look, carriers and self-insured plans, if you set up a direct payment program and a participant gets a test from an out-of-network provider, we'll limit the cost of that test for how much you have to pay to $12. So it caps how much the payer has to pay to that out-of-network pharmacy. But the $12 limit only applies if the payer sets up a direct payment program and actually makes the payment. For example, if there's a test shortage or if there's a shortage of tests, Even if a carrier set up a direct payment program with an in-network pharmacy, and that in-network pharmacy can't provide that test because they don't have it, and a participant goes out to an out-of-network retailer and gets a test, this $12 limit does not apply. So while it's nice that there's this price limit and an attempt to reduce price gouging, it's not a perfect fit. Because there might be instances where the in-network relationship doesn't produce a test and the limit will not apply.
0: Well, Chris, I think I speak for all of us when I say I can't wait till we break out of this COVID groundhog loop that we seem to be in. It just keeps circling and cycling through. So thanks for helping us think through those issues a little bit, because, as I said, the details coming out from the government were rather scant as to how we actually implement it. And there were lots of options there. So thanks for leading us through that. Well, we covered quite a bit today. Chris, good job. I hope we can break out of some of these loops in 2022, but the issues sound like they're still going to continue with us and we'll keep monitoring them.
1: Yeah. And I am expecting, I mean, I think we're all hopeful that we get out of this Groundhog Day loop, but come March, you know, I mentioned the State of the Union at the beginning of our podcast, that will likely kind of tee up all of the issues that will be tackled throughout the spring and the summer. And uh, we'll wait to see and keep our fingers crossed for some progress and certainty, of course.
0: You bet. Well, we'll uh, talk with you in March then and look forward to uh, your continued insights. Thanks once
1: again, Chris, take care. All right. Thank you as always. And uh, everyone stay safe and uh, have a fun rest of the month.
0: Thanks for listening. We'll be back with another episode in a few weeks. Until then, keep an eye on your inbox for the next issue of our policy brief. To engage in a live Q&A with Chris Condolucci and our friends at Spring Street Exchange, be sure to register for our upcoming policy forum. To learn more, visit healthplanalliance.org. See you next time on Healthcare Policy Unpacked.